Welcome to Preaching and Preachers, a weekly podcast devoted to those who preach and to the task of preaching itself. I'm your host, Jason Allen, president of Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. Today, I want to welcome my friend, Dr. Michael Kruger, to the podcast. Dr. Kruger serves as the president and Samuel C. Patterson professor of New Testament and early church Christianity at Reformed Theological Seminary in Charlotte, North Carolina. He's the author of 13 books, most recently, Bully Pulpit, Confronting the Problem of Spiritual Abuse in the Church. Michael, welcome to Preaching and Preachers. Thanks, Jason. Good to be back on the show again. Yeah, delighted to uh, be able to visit with you today about your new book, Out with Zondervan, entitled Bully Pulpit, Confronting the Problem of Spiritual Abuse in the Church. And so today we'll get to build our conversation out from your uh, most recent contribution, a book that I've been able to read through and enjoy, and uh, thus have looked forward with anticipation to our conversation today. Before we get into that, though, why don't you give us a word of update on uh, things there at RTS Charlotte? Any family or other ministry word of update would be uh, valued as well. Yeah, thanks, my friend. Things are going great here. We are wrapping up, believe it or not, our uh, 30th anniversary year in Charlotte. So everybody out there probably knows RTS has multiple campuses, and the Charlotte campus is just celebrating our 30th anniversary. And we happen to do so in the same year we've reached an all-time record high in our enrollment here. So we're just really thankful to the Lord for his goodness to us and a lot of enthusiasm and optimism and, and it's an exciting time. So we're just sitting back and showing a lot of gratitude and thankfulness for what the Lord has done up to this point and uh, eager to see what's coming next year. Yeah, well, praise God for the 30 years and for the record enrollment. And and as you know, neither of those are being taken for granted, especially that latter point these days. And boy, so many Christian colleges and seminaries are are really struggling. And uh, God has been kind to us here, like I know he's been to you guys as well. So uh, congratulations on that front. Thank you. Yeah, it's a tough, tough season for, for Christian higher education and higher education in general. As you noted, I mean, a lot of schools are, are struggling financially and also enrollment-wise. And you never know what's around the corner, but so far, so good for us. And we're just really thankful for it. So give us a word as well of update on the family and then uh, other writing projects you have either currently or here in the near term we'd love to hear about. Family's doing great. Melissa and I are just thankful to be heading in the holiday season. Two of our kids in college now, one at UNC Chapel Hill, one at NC State. So they're they're in rival schools, which is always kind of fun. And so they'll be back home for the holidays. And then our youngest, our daughter Kate, sophomore in high school. So it'll be a great holiday season. And, And Melissa stays busy as some of the listeners may know she's director of women's uh, initiatives for the gospel coalition. So she's busy with her own travel and writing and speaking. And that combined with mine makes our life certainly never boring. (laughs) Mm. We're always busy doing something. And my current writing project, I'm sort of moving from popular level book back to academic book. And now I'm working on a, an academic monograph on miniature codices, which are basically tiny manuscripts in the early Christian world. So certainly what I normally do, if you want to say it that way, in the world of canon and text, but a little bit of a change from some recent books I've written. So, yeah, and that's one of the things I've noted over the years, uh, both in reading your works and uh, in conversation occasionally, is you do kind of have this back and forth from something that's more technical or academic, again, text and canon genre, and then something that'll pop out every couple years that's more, more popular in nature. And I guess I'm curious just as an observer, kind of your interest level on both those fronts? Is that something that just as things pop up that you'll write on if it really captured your imagination? Or is that is there a broader kind of conceptual, perhaps philosophical approach that you have to your own writing ministry where you're you're trying to, to strike some sort of, you know, kind of enduring balance or something? Yeah, that's a great question. I wish I could tell you it's all planned out and thought through, <laughs> but it's not. You know how publishing goes. It's sort of, you know, here and there. I mean, most of my work's 
historically have been definitely on the academic side of the spectrum. But in the last four or five years, um, I've tried to branch out. Part of that is really began with my book, Surviving Religion 101, which was a book that's been in my mind for a long time. And I finally wrote that. And that sort of began a little bit of a, a stretch towards popular level books. I think the other reason is probably just in my role as president, where I'm, I'm still busy doing technical work, but I'm also looking at bigger picture issues. And when I see those bigger picture issues, they motivate me to sometimes take the time to address them. So speaking today about the bully pulpit, and obviously a play on words there, confronting the problem of spiritual abuse in the church. And so give us a sense of uh, just just by way of contextual realities as to what you are seeing, perhaps what you've experienced or spoken with others who've experienced uh, that, that prompted the the desire for the book. Yeah, well, you know, as I just said, in my role as a seminary president, sometimes I'm sure you do this too, you're you notice things and notice trends and and pick up on stuff. And we're trying to create, as I know you guys are, really godly, Christ-centered leaders. And and sometimes there's trends that need to be addressed that maybe haven't been addressed. And so about three or four years ago, I started really looking into this issue of spiritual abuse, just heavy-handed, authoritarian kind of domineering leadership from pastors from time to time. And I had noticed it, and this was even before the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill podcast came out, which since that came out, is kind of on everyone's radar, but for a number of reasons, some cases I've seen in my own circles, and then just broader observations, I noticed that this is out there more than I was comfortable with, and I, I wanted to make sure that churches think through carefully, you know, who are we calling to the ministry, and who, who's attracted to the ministry, and are we really thinking through the type of leaders that Christ wants us to have? And so those those are important issues I know we all care about, and I think it's just kind of hit hit to the forefront of, of what's going on in our world now. Yeah, and boy, this conversation, we could take a lot of different directions. And I know you, in your book, you touch <laughs> on this topic kind of in a number of different ways and get at it a number of different ways. Uh, for our listeners that are you know, largely local church pastors, ministers, seminary students, I, I want to try to craft the conversation in a way that's most helpful for them also. And uh, I guess one of the things that I've encountered some during and then the um, aftermath of, of the Mars Hill podcast and documentary put out by uh, CT was I know I had a number of pastors and friends in ministry say to me things like, like, how do we know the difference between when it's spiritual abuse and when it's just someone like confronting sin? And yeah. so on the one hand, you had this kind of increased awareness of spiritual abuse as a thing, and it does happen in places, and certain leaders have a track record of, of, of spiritual abuse being unnecessarily heavy-handed, perhaps being uh, just sinfully heavy-handed with the flock or with subordinate staff members. And then when the Mars Hill story emerged and really captured the imagination, that in some cases brought attention to others in lesser profile places that were engaging in similar activity. At the same time, uh, I've heard from a few churches and in a few different kind of ministry locations of, of it, it also brought some focus and perhaps uh, some suggestion, if not accusation, that another pastor or another church or another elder was being similarly abusive. And I, I heard many protests and say, no, this is just like everyone's putting on Mark Driscoll, you know, lenses now and they're seeing abuse in places where it's actually not happening. It's just, it's just, I'm being prophetic. I'm trying to be, trying to fulfill the scriptures and, and turn a sinner from the air of their way. And so give us a sense how, how we are to sort out this whole kind of, kind of this whole galaxy of spiritual abuse. Yeah. No, that's great. I mean, Obviously, getting the definition right and spotting it accurately is 100% the main goal of my book. I might even say that the entire reason I wrote the book is to address precisely the question you're getting at. So I spend, as you saw, a lengthy amount of time going through definitions and debate over definitions. And then I have quite a bit of discussion of what's not abuse. 
there can be negative things in someone's ministry that's not necessarily abusive, and we have to make sure that we're very careful about that. But but I think a few points are worth noting. Even if we acknowledge, and I think we should acknowledge, there's a level of grayness to some of this, and there's a level of subjectivity to some of it. What I want to guard against in the book is for some people to take subjectivity as a reason to not address it. And I see this, this idea, well, if it's subjective and it's gray, we're just going to leave it alone. And I'm like, well, there's, there's a lot of sins in Scripture that can have a degree of subjectivity to them. But if they're part of the qualifications for ministry, which this is, then we're required, even if it's hard and difficult and requires nuance, we're required to address them. So, for example, one of the things about a minister is they should not be prideful. Well, how do you evaluate pride? Have you ever thought about how to, how to, how to gauge that, how to quantify that? It's extremely difficult. But yet, we also know that if we don't address that, then we're going to get people in ministry with the type of pride and egos that can do real damage. So, so the first thing I would say is that sometimes it's tricky, but we still got to press ahead with it as best in the most godly way we can. Here's the other thing I will say is that also sometimes we have to recognize that even if pastors are calling out sin and rebuking sin in their world or in their congregations, which is an entirely legitimate pastoral practice, and we want to defend that and acknowledge that, we also have to recognize that sometimes the abuse takes place even if there's sin. In other words, sometimes there's real sin and the correction goes overboard. Think about like a parent. Even if a kid disobeys, sometimes parents spin off into abusive behavior to their children. And they can say, hey, well, I've got to discipline my child. And we would say yes. And sometimes your child is doing things wrong. But you also have to be very careful about that line between legitimate discipline and abusive behavior. And so these are tricky issues, and I try to navigate them as best I can in the book. You know, speaking of the subjectivity of some of these things, I mean, you look at First Timothy 3, which, of course, those descriptors, those character expectations uh, are clear, but, but how that shows up or doesn't show up in the life of a minister uh, is subject to interpretation. Now, now you get into to, to glaring matters and, and clear excesses that by any, you know, any, any, any prudent assessment indicates a, a problem or, or, or the presence of a virtue or lack thereof. But, but there is some, some assessment going on that there is some subjectivity when anytime we're, we're dealing with attitudes and sentiments and outlooks and, and tone, I mean, there is some subjective assessment going on, right? Oh, yeah. It's not always black and white. I think like anything, there's cases we'll come across that are fairly, fairly blatant and fairly plain. And there's cases that we come across that are going to be more subtle. And so certainly that gray area will be there. And I think, you know, as I said a moment ago, even if that gray area is there, I think that the key is that we, we be cautious as we move forward, but at the same time realize, hey, this is a real phenomenon. You know, people aren't just making up a new category here. Um, and I have a whole chapter in my book about how biblically speaking, the, the warnings, repeated warnings against domineering and heavy-handed behavior are right there in the Bible. So God knows, Jesus knows that there's a tendency in leaders to be that way. And so you just biblically speaking, we're obligated to keep an eye out for it. And I think that's what uh, I'm trying to accomplish in the book. So give us a sense then as to why the listener today, why the average pastor, average seminary student, why they should have an antennae for spiritual abuse in a church. Several things. I mean, one is because they love the church. <laughs> you know, one of the things I repeatedly say in the book, and I certainly want your listeners to hear, is that, you know, you write a book like this that that speaks about, you know, what you might call bad leaders, someone thinks, well, you don't love the church. No, I love the church. I love pastors. And, and for that matter, most pastors, the vast majority of them are godly, humble, gentle shepherds. But because I love the church, I want to see her more holy, more sanctified, and more protected. And I want to guard the, the people in the church because I love them from the harm that sometimes wolves will do when they enter into the flock. And so part of the reason anyone should care is because they love the church. If you love Jesus, you love the church. Here's the other reason that I think they should care is because spiritual abuse can really 
do more damage than I think people realize. One of the things I've experienced as I've begun to write about this, both in my blog and my book and so forth, is the amount of people that have kind of come out of the woodwork writing emails to me that have said basically, thank you, thank you, thank you for talking about this. Finally, someone's talking about this. And they said, what you described in your book is exactly what happened in my church. In fact, I've had several people write me and think that, that I'm talking about their church. They're like, surely you, you must have some, some knowledge in my church because what you described is exactly what's going on in my church. And so I get email after email, really this flood of feedback. And it's showing me that there's this sense out there that we've got to find a way to, to biblically, carefully, and in a balanced way address an issue that I think a lot of people are feeling. So give us a sense then of, of the symptoms. What should one be on the lookout for? If you see these signs, these practices, then you know there may be a problem. Yeah. So I mentioned these in a number of different places. I would say probably the number one indicator, and again, you have to realize that this has to be qualified with all the, the things we've just talked about, but a number one indicator is what we call the debris field of broken relationships behind a leader. In other words, one of the things that marks typically a spiritually abusive leader is a long, deep, uh, serious debris trail of broken lives. And by broken lives, I don't just mean people that disagreed with you. I don't mean just people that you had a one-off encounter with that didn't go well. I'm talking about people who've left the church, left the ministry, their lives are, are crushed under your past experience. People with that kind of track record, there at least needs to be at a minimum a closer look at what's going on in that particular ministry. And and by the way, this was classic Driscoll, right? I mean, he even admitted it at some level. He, he described it as the bus that that people get run over by that he's driving and that and he just sort of dismiss it as well. That's what happens in ministry. But I, I don't think that is what should just be happening in ministry. I think we have to give serious care to that. So one of the, the telltale signs is that long debris field of broken relationships. And usually, and here's the other thing, usually those relationships are unresolved, meaning they're 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 estranged, broken, and, and not ever addressed. And I think that's part of part of that package. Yeah, I, I tell folks, especially when churches are looking for pastors, I say, look, any pastor out there can have a bad church experience. Uh, but when they've wrapped oh, yeah, up like absolutely. three or four or five of them, that's a sign of concern. <laughs> and then conversely, look, um, you know, churches can have bad moments. But if churches have become, you know, wood chippers that, that churn out pastors every two or three years who, who go there to serve them and they wind up getting dismissed or, or leaving beleaguered, well, then that should be a sign of, of cause too. Uh, give us a sense as to just the temperamental side of things. Like, like what's what are the bounds of appropriateness? What tends to be outside the bounds of as far as even once human interactions with with other church members, with other staff members, and and their temperamental disposition? Yeah, of course, this gets tricky, right? Because people have different personalities and come across in different ways. But in the book, I return again and again to the biblical categories, and the biblical categories mention several words over and over again that pastors should have. They talk about gentleness, and I, and I point out how this comes up in many different places throughout numerous passages, not to mention Jesus' own character, but a number of places where people are discussing uh, requirements for ministry. Uh, so gentleness is one. Humility is one in terms of a non-narcissistic type of personality in the pulpit. Another biblical category here is going to be you know, not contentious or pugilistic or argumentative, and then I make the case in First Timothy 3 and other places, the word there in the Greek, plectes, I think is really best translated bully. It means violent, but it, there's other ways to understand it in the, in the lexical range. It means to be someone who's ruling over and domineering the flock under their care. So if we stick with those biblical categories of biblical words, when, when I think about who belongs in the pastoral ministry, we're looking for someone who embodies those characteristics. Now, 
we should also acknowledge those aren't the only characteristics a person has. They're not, when we say someone should be gentle, we don't say they're only gentle. There's times to be courageous and there's times to be strong. There's times to be firm. But a, a ministry that is not representing those characteristics at some level is part of the issue that deserves closer attention. And I think this raises the bigger issue that we all probably need to talk about, and that is qualifications for ministry, at least biblically speaking, have a lot more to do with character than gifting. And I think we flip those. And I think seminaries, and, and you know, you and I are both leaders of seminaries, we always can continue to give good thought to that. I mean, how much of our curriculum is centered on one versus the other? And I think that's something that's occupied my reflection in the last couple of years. So again, when you think about the local church, and you love the church, I love the church, our listeners will love the church, we don't want to see a church endure spiritual abuse. How can churches protect themselves? Uh, is this a matter of policies? Is this a matter of more thorough vetting, like would-be ministers? How would you encourage churches to protect themselves? One of the things I, I tried to do in the book is not just say, here's a problem, and then say, thanks for listening. <laughs> I tried to at least give some preliminary things that can be done. And, and I acknowledge in that last chapter that even if someone did everything that I recommended, that wouldn't necessarily solve the problem, and it's just barely starting. But I do think there's a number of steps that churches can take that can help. One is the preventive side. You know, it's, it's one thing to stop an abusive leader. It's another thing to prevent that abusive leader from ever coming into a position of authority in the first place. And so I do think there needs to be better upfront vetting of candidates. You know, I talked about character over competency as a key issue. I think doing a more thorough look at someone's prior ministry history, like you talked about a minute ago, would be very, very important. We have to realize that the you know, three recommendations from your best friends are not necessarily a very good way to assess someone's character. It just isn't. And I think we have to go beyond that. And then once a person becomes part of a local church, there has to be transparency and accountability. And I, I've been surprised how many ministries don't even do annual reviews. And it's really a stunning thing. And I don't mean just of the senior pastor. I mean, even the senior pastor reviewing the staff. And that's important, too, because that protects the staff from later retaliations. If there's positive, positive reviews and then the pastor turns on somebody, that could be a protection for them. So those are just some basic things that I think we can do better in our, in our local churches. You know, time is flying by here, but uh, let me bring you one final question. And that is this, to the listener who perhaps upon honest reflection might be prone to abusive behavior. Uh, his temper is a bit much. He can be fretful and paranoid without cause and thus lash out at people. What would you say to those listening who, who may have tendencies in this direction, but, but they want to self-correct? Well, if, if that's a person that's listening, I will say first that one of, the, one of the major problems with most abusive leaders is they have the type of approach where they think it's always everybody else's fault, never mind. So if someone comes forward and says, hey, maybe it is a little bit, or maybe it's a lot my fault, and maybe I really need to look at that, I would already commend them right out of the gate saying, hey, you're already... You already passed 50% of abusive leaders right there in the sense that you're just willing to do some self-reflection in a serious manner. If someone's in that posture, I think they go to some key people in their lives and say, hey, I really want you to give me some honest feedback about my leadership without fear of retaliation, without fear of getting fired, without fear of me blacklisting you. How am I doing? You know, what, what am I not seeing? And I think one of the things about a, a humble person is they realize that they just have blind spots. And I, I, I say at the end of the book, if you're in conflict after conflict after conflict in your ministry, have you basically chalked it up that it's always someone else's fault every time? 
if that's you, there probably needs to be a sense of self-reflection where you're like, it's just statistically unlikely. It's just mathematically unlikely that it's always everyone else's fault when you might be the common denominator in every one of those conflicts. And so there is at least a point for honest self-reflection. And then if you're seeing trends there, look, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're not fit for the ministry, but we want to we want to address those. You want to turn away from those. You want to see change in those ways. And and I think that's how real change starts. It starts as it always does, a recognition of sin, repentance from it, and, and a turning back to the way that Christ has called us to walk. Well, Michael, we'll have to leave it there, but I really appreciate the conversation today. And I want to commend your new book, Bully Pulpit, Confronting the Problem of Spiritual Abuse in the Church, uh, available wherever books are sold. Thank you for joining me today on Preaching and Preachers. Thanks, Jason. Thank you for being with us today and for listening to Preaching and Preachers. For more information, go to my website, jasonkallen.com. That's jasonkallen.com.